Tonight's episode is brought to you by the auspices of spring. Vendetti Optics and you, our listeners. And hogs will kill you so hard, so completely hard, that you might actually die from the encounter. Like all the way dead. Like permanently dead. What is up, all of you wayward souls, and welcome back to the Wayward Stories podcast. Wayward Stories is the podcast where we tell the tales of our wanderings and our wonderings. How are you guys doing this week? It is good to be back here in the studio. You may have noticed that I'm a week late. Once again, we had a dark week that was unplanned that I did not warn you about. Um, Such is life right now, guys. I'm sorry. Like I've said, you know, in the last few episodes, as things have gotten a little bit kind of weird and out of whack, just try to bear with me, man. Turns out trying to do like college things and lifey things and worky things are like really, really hard to pull off all at once. You know, I don't think I've bitten off more than I can chew, but damn, man, I'm close to it. I'm close to it. I'm pushing the very limits of what I'm capable of doing. And burnout is a very real situation that I'm facing right now. Um, but there is a broader, bigger goal. There is a bigger end goal that kind of keeps me moving along, I think. Um, but yeah, things can just get a little bit out of whack and I can't get an episode out sometimes when I want to, but I promise I'm trying to stay on top of it and keep something coming at some point. So we missed a week. Um, this last one was actually like a one-off, did not expect it. Um, my ex-wife actually had her first child. Um, since we've been divorced or whatever. So my baby girl got a new little sister and it just kind of like I had to take a weekend that's not normally mine, which I say had to. Don't let me misplace that state that I always want all of the times that I can get baby girl. But like, you know, I wasn't prepared for it. It was a last minute deal and it's a recording weekend. So a recording did not happen. So I did the right thing and uh, took care of the old girl child and we had a great time. You know, we've been having some awesome adventures. There's going to be some episodes coming up soon enough about some of the adventures we've been taking. Man, she's really taken to it like a like a fish to the water. And um, we've been having a great time out there exploring a lot of stuff here in Arkansas and some stuff over in Oklahoma. And man, a lot of cool stuff. And we'll be talking about that pretty soon. I've got episodes already in mind. Just haven't brought them to the forefront to get done. But I got thrown off of schedule for recording. So we got thrown off by a week and you have my sincerest apologies. Um, But I appreciate each and every one of you for sticking around. And I welcome all of you new listeners because the downloads continue to rise every week, exponentially week over week, which is awesome and exciting. But I'm like, also like, man, what a great timing when I'm here getting like wonky production schedule going on and fighting through life and not getting stuff out on time all the time. Perfect timing, but you know what? We'll take it whenever, and I will just keep doing my best to hopefully put out good content for you to enjoy. Um, I want to say right up front, again, as always, you guys, if you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're listening on the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. You know, especially the ratings and reviews, huge, huge, huge for us. Um, And if you just want to check things out, go over to waywardstories.com. You know, that's where you can find all the links to all the everythings. Um, But yeah, appreciate you guys coming back. Appreciate you hanging around and sticking with me while we've kind of had some dark weeks thrown in here and there and things getting out of whack. 
So let's get on to this week's show. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week, we're going to talk about affecting your own self-rescue. We've got several search and rescue episodes now. This will be volume five, as it were, but really it's kind of volume seven. I was looking back through the catalog, through my portfolio, if you will, and I was like, well, gosh, we've got four listed, like volume one, two, three, and four, but there's two other episodes at least, the 24-hour search and rescue slash hiking pack episode, and then also the firecraft episode. Those could easily be listed as search and rescue episodes. So we've got a pretty good handful of of episodes that are kind of how-tos and the peek behind the curtain of the what-fors and the hows, the whys, the wins, Um, and you guys love it. Like, they are the best performing episodes by far as a whole. They're the best performing episodes. So, you know, there's always something fun to talk about when it comes to search and rescue. And I was just thinking about this week. I had a whole other episode lined up in my head. And I was like, well, I don't remember what brought it to mind. But I started thinking about, you know, like a self-rescue episode. Like, it's affecting your own self-rescue. It's so helpful when the people that we come looking for know what the heck they're doing and are like doing useful things to help us find them. Um, and there's like a whole litany of stuff, man. I mean, from, from preventative, you know, like an an ounce of prevention, right. From just preventative maintenance to keeping from getting lost to start with, to knowing how to start acting. Once you know that you were lost, all these things, there's so many things, there's a litany of things that we can talk about. And that's what I think we're going to do tonight. Like we put together a little bit of an outline here. Most of the show is going to be about wilderness. Like basically if you get lost, you know what to do. Um, the disclaimers right up front, anyone out there listening, cause people listen from all over the world and everyone on the internet these days is a troll and everyone is happy has happy hands and quick trigger fingers when it comes to the keyboard. I am not going to cover this all fully in depth. Everything I say is not going to apply to where you are. I'm in Arkansas, America. You might be in freaking Scandinavia at the edge of the damn Arctic Circle. They're going to be different things, okay? Just take that into account before you start firing your fiery darts across the ocean. Um, Just keep that in mind. This is meant to be a broad-level overview of main things, you know, major points that everyone should just kind of consider to keep in mind because it will help anyone anywhere have a little bit better chance of survival. And if you are the thinking kind and you are a critical thinker and perhaps your environment does not match my own, you can think for yourself and maybe take what I said as a template and go, you know, that makes sense. And all I've got to do is apply the fact that I live in a climate that is a billion degrees colder or a billion degrees hotter and take into account a few little, you know, tweaks. I just tweak it a little bit. So, you know, if you've got stuff that I didn't mention that you think is a great idea, send me an email, my wayward story at gmail.com or a message, a message on messenger or anything. Find me anywhere you can find me. Um, and let me know, but you know, just be nice about it. If you come at me, Like so many people come at me, like I'm just, you know, I'm not going to give you your 15 minutes of not even really fame talking on a podcast with a few thousand downloads an episode, right? But I'm not going to even bring you up. Um, Anyway, but if you come at me with respect, I will point you out. I will give you full credit and I'll even send people to your Instagram account so you can get Instagram famous on your own. How about that? But just be respectful. Just be respectful. But disclaimer up front. I can't cover everything, but we're going to cover a lot of stuff and it should be broadly 
useful. And like I said, these are the best performing episodes. So I think that a lot of people will find it interesting and we're just going to get after it. We're going to give it a shot, but we're going to start. Most of it's going to be about wilderness, just getting lost while you're hiking, while you're hunting, while you're fishing. There's so many things. And we will do a little bit towards the end about um, like water, white water type of stuff, anything in the water, some kind of, um, cause you know, there's not a lot of, you know, people don't take the time to do a lot of like learning and training about what do I do if I'm out there you know, kayaking or I'm rafting or I'm boating and something goes wrong with like I hit a hydro off a low head dam or I get swept into a strainer, you know, you don't, there's not a lot of people that are just fully aware of that. Most people that go on the river aren't really thinking along those lines. That's I've come to find out over the years and firsthand experience. Um, so we'll just go over a few of those. There won't be a lot to talk about because when it comes to water, there's not a lot to talk about. You just need to know what it is and try to avoid it. And if you haven't avoided it, there's very precious little you can do to save your own tail. But there are a couple of things you can try. And that's what we will talk about towards the end of the show somewhere. But for now, let's get into the show and the wilderness portion. What happens if you were to get lost in the wilderness? Okay, so one of the very first things to do to affect your self-rescue is to not need it to start with. And most of this comes down to just like prevention, you know, an ounce of prevention, right? Pre-planning, knowing what you're getting into, knowing the environment, knowing the hazards that are in the environment under like knowing again, when I just said the environment, don't let me just overshoot right past that. Think broader picture, like look at the maps before you go. Hey, I'm coming in on this highway that skirts the entire western flank of my hiking area. And there's a dirt road that runs the entire northern flank five miles away. And there's another one to the south. And oh, look, right here on the Tobo map, there's a power line or a pipeline over here all the way to the right. No matter where you are in like the contiguous United States, in most of the world at this point, being quite honest, there's going to be a lot of infrastructure somewhere near you. And if you were aware of where it is, you know, before you go in, you might not even get lost because no matter where you are in that area, you generally know where you are. And if you can keep a bearing, maintain a bearing and keep walking, once you know that you're lost, you're going to hit some of that infrastructure and thus you're going to find your way back to safety or somebody that can help you find your way back to your vehicle. Like just little things like that. So much of it is prevention and it's knowledge guys. Just be on top of it ahead of time. For example, Understand the idea of cascading failures. This is something just to be mindful of in all events in life and all things. But most major catastrophes that have happened throughout history, a great deal of them can be traced down to like a series of events. Because, you know, if it's something big, like, say, a giant ship seeking or something, it should be totally covered, right? Like there should be backups to safety backups to safety backups, right? And there are there always are. The problem is a cascading failure is an event where, okay, well, one thing was that, oh, well, the proper maintenance hadn't been being done. So this safety backup had failed and nobody knew it yet. Number two, this event occurred, which was the, say, catalyst for the cascading failure to begin. It was the first domino to fall. And, you know, that stands alone as its own thing. And, uh-oh, okay, backup number one failed. Uh-oh, backup number two was already not working. Oh, it's the Titanic. We're, you know, we don't even have enough life rafts because we are full of ego and pride and we don't need that. The only, you know, God himself couldn't sink this ship. Cascading failures usually are a series of events that taken alone, totally reasonable to mitigate. But when they come together, as it usually does in a major event, 
it's catastrophic. Well, that happens in the micro just as well as the macro. When it comes down to hikers missing, hunters missing, usually it is a cascading failure. Forgot the compass, didn't take it out, didn't expect there to be so much cloud cover, got turned around and disoriented and off trail. Oh, I didn't bring anything to drink for water. Oh gosh, now I'm dehydrated and I can't quite think straight. Now I'm walking in circles because I'm not moving in a direction because I don't have my compass. So the cascading failures are usually what causes everything. The number one thing to know when you face a major event, a cascading failure could be happening or starting is to slow down and assess the situation. Don't panic. That is the biggest key to everything is don't panic. Never, ever panic. Stop, take a deep breath, look around and figure out, okay, what is the situation? Do some situational assessments, become situationally aware. I am lost. Hmm. I don't have enough water. Crap. I didn't do enough preventative maintenance. Um, okay. So I need to find water, but I also need to get found to basically just stop, take a deep breath, and assess. And once you get your bearings locally within yourself of, okay, here's the situation I'm in. Here are the first needs that I need to meet to take care of myself. That is the first step on the road to getting yourself safely and effectively extracted from the situation you're in. But it's just having a knowledge. Okay. Understand the area, understand the dangers. Like when you think of dangers, be thinking about where am I going? What am I getting into? What are, okay, wildlife dangers. That's one thing. Like here in Arkansas, we've talked about this. I think back on the Big Bluff episode, possibly. I know. Hogs. Y'all, we have hogs in Arkansas. And hogs will kill you so hard, so completely hard, that you might actually die from the encounter. Like all the way dead. Like permanently dead. Hogs are murderous. So you need to know they're there. And you need to understand how to mitigate it. If you run up on some hogs and one of them just maybe, I don't know, maybe he thinks you were giving him the mean mug and he comes straight at you. What do you do? Those are things you need to know going in. And the answer to that is actually hope to hell there's a tree you can climb. Like we did extensive looking into this. Just hope to hell there's a tree you can climb. Okay. They're basically bulletproof <laughs> for the most part, especially when they coming at you head on and you're trying to aim at them head on while they're running and you're terrified. Hope you can climb a tree. Okay, that's the one thing you've got over a hog that you don't have over, say, a bear. Hope you can climb a tree. But know what you're getting into. Know is it a high wildfire danger area? Is it a low-lying area where there are high risk of flooding? Could you have an overnight flood? And knowing that, you can know, okay, well, I need to build my shelter higher than the water. Like, never build a shelter down right on the water anywhere. Like, we'll, we'll talk about that some more here in a minute. Um, anyway, just know ahead of time. Another thing to do, preventative maintenance, is a trip plan. We've talked about this before. A lot of what we're going to talk about tonight, we have talked about before in other episodes about search and rescue, because I always am like throwing in things that I know, you know, little examples of this or examples of that. So any of you that have been around a long time are going to hear some stuff that you've already heard. Apologize for that, but, you know, it's evergreen information. It's always good information. Um, but just a trip plan. And a trip plan, for anyone that does not know, most of you have probably at least heard it if you like to hike, if you like to do anything in the outdoors. At this point in history, you've probably heard of it. But if you're not aware, anyone who is unawares, a trip plan is simply you leaving information with somebody that will know how to check up on you that this is where I'm going exactly. This is how long I plan to be gone exactly. 
And this is the point where you should send help. And this is where you tell them to come looking for me. Basically, it's a buddy system. I'm going out. I'm going to be gone for you know a day. I'm going to be gone for an afternoon. I'm going to be gone for whatever. Just let someone know where you're going and how long you plan to be gone. So if something happens and you don't show up for work tomorrow or you come back, don't come back that night home to your family or you call someone and say, you know, they're expecting to call that, hey, back out, you know, whatever. They know who to call and they know where to send the people to call. This guy is missing. This girl is missing. So make a trip plan every time and leave it with someone. That's just the number one thing to do. Everyone should do that. Even if it's just as simple as a text message kind of check-in thing with one of your buddies, let them know. Um, The key to everything is knowledge. Like this is what we're talking about so far, cascading failures, understanding them and that they can happen to you, knowing to slow down, assess the situation, what to do about it. Um, the knowledge of all the dangers of what's the wildlife, what is the water situation? What is, I mean, could there be wildfires? Is that something you need to be aware of and be watching for and smelling the wind for? These are the kinds of things that you need to go in with. It's just knowledge. And this is stuff that weighs nothing that you carry in your old head brain and your smarticle particles, right? They weigh nothing. They're your most important tool. They're your lightest tool, and they will get you the furthest in life and keep you alive the longest in this life. I assure you, it's applicable to just about anything you can choose um, to try to apply it to. Anything you can choose to try to applicable it to, right? So keeping in line with the ideas of prevention in this wilderness situation that we're talking about, gear is next. Okay, what kind of gear can you have to help keep from getting lost or can you have on you in the event that you get lost that will help you affect your self-rescue? And now we're just going to go over the gear here. The next little section, we're going to talk about the mitigation of being lost and how to use all of that gear. Um, but the number one thing is this. There's a couple of rules to know. One is two is one, one is none. Okay. That means if it's super important and you only have one, let's say like you only have one way to make shelter and you're hiking through the Cambodian rainforest in monsoon season, or you only have one way to start a fire, count on it to fail. It's gonna, when you need it the most, it's gonna, that's Murphy's law. And Murphy's law is a real thing. It just really is. Any of you that spend any time doing anything anywhere in the world, you know that Murphy's law is real. Um, and it's going to fail. This is going to happen. So you need to be prepared for that. Two is one, one is none. Have a backup for important things like fire, water, shelter. The most important things, headlamps. Have two headlamps and have backup batteries for your headlamps. Two is one, one is none. The other thing is the rule of threes. The rule of threes, quite simply, is not a super hard and fast rule, but it is a good general rule of thumb. You can go three minutes without oxygen, and that's not really applicable to us tonight, because if you're fighting for oxygen, like all the rest of this doesn't even matter, right? Um, you can go about three hours, they say, without shelter, three days without water, and three weeks without food. Okay, food we're also not very concerned about at all in this scenario, because food, you could go three months probably without food. Honestly, you're going to be hangry. You're going to be grumpy. You're not going to have a good time. Morale is going to be an issue, but food's not really necessary to survival. Okay. It's not really necessary to survival. What we're focusing on here is water and shelter, water and shelter and 
fire falls under shelter, okay, at least in my little list of things, Wayward Sons list of must-haves, fire is grouped with shelter. So you have water and shelter, and then for our purposes tonight, we're going to be talking about signaling, signaling devices, things you need to have to help yourself get found, right? This is all about affecting your own self-rescue. So what kind of things do you need for this? Um, well, for water, number one, take water to drink. Take a couple of bottles of water. That's the first thing right? Just have water. That's one of your two is one. Second is a life straw or a pick your brand, cat it and pick a brand, but some form of water filtration. I like the straw things, the life straws. And then there's some other versions that are good name brands. They're not knockoffs. They're just competitors. I don't remember all the name brands. I've always just gotten a life straw. They're proven effective. You can drink water out of dang septic tank if you needed to, which God forbid that should ever happen, but you can do it. Okay, have a life straw or something where you can just stick it in the creek and drink out of that dude. That's the simplest thing you could do. They're not real expensive. They're 20 bucks or less. They're pretty small. They're super light. They fit in the bottom of your pack. You should never even have to open the stupid thing unless you're in a bad situation. Just have a life straw. Drink, take water to drink and then take a life straw or a reasonable competitor thereof. And there you have two is one, one is none for water. One of the most important things you can have in water. The rule of you can go three days without water. Again, it's a loose rule. Depends on where you're at. If you're in the desert, three days is a long damn time to go without water. You're probably not going to make it three days. There are other places. If it's a great temperate climate and you're not expending a ton of calories, you might go quite a bit longer without water based on water you already have stored in your body. But it's a good general rule that water is super important. And you need it pretty quickly. And the best way to make sure you have it is to take some with you, but also carry a life straw so you can drink it out of any source that you find, essentially. So you take care of water in that way. Now, as far as shelter goes, shelter is more fire than anything for me because shelter, shelter should be pretty easy. Y'all, you can take a tarp if you want. Um, you can take all kinds. Of, I mean, you can get, I prefer taking like a really nice rainfly. Like I prefer, like I have an Eno rainfly, you know, that I use for my hammock camping and things like that. And that's what I will carry about. Cause see, if you spend the money on something technical, it weighs a lot less and it packs a lot smaller, right? It's easier to carry in your bag. It doesn't weigh as much. A tarp weighs a ton and it's huge. Try folding a tarp down into nothing. It's a pain in the butt, man. Tarps are five bucks though. Okay, a good Eno Rainfly run you from 70 to 150 bucks or more, possibly. You know, they're super expensive. So I get it. A tarp works great. They're just, they're not great for backpacking with. They're not great for hiking with, but it will work. But something like that makes for a great shelter. Um, the other options, and this is what I tend to do, because I don't typically carry around my Rainfly just everywhere. Because it is, even though it's a freaking nice one and a technical one, it's still a bit heavy, still takes up quite a bit of room. I just have an SOL bivy bag. Okay, it is basically a space blanket, which all of you know. Some of you may not know what an SOL bivy bag is, but all of you know what a space blanket is, right? An SOL bivy bag is like a space blanket on steroids. It's like the hopped up next generation version. It's like the best thing, in my opinion, you can have for just basic survival, right? Number one is blaze orange. I mean, I bet you can buy them in different colors now, but buy it in blaze orange because you should only use it in the event that you're in trouble, just like a space blanket, right? Um, so that you're easier to spot. That also satisfies the need for signaling and signaling devices, right? Um, so, or at least one, it's a helpful aid. It's not the only thing you need, but it's a helpful aid. The more visible you are, the better. 
Um, but you get into it. It's not like you wrap up in a space blanket where you're losing all that heat through, you know, the, the end of the burrito that's become unwrapped. Like this is a mummy bag that is, you know, it's 20 bucks. They're not expensive. Um, or 25 now with inflation, whatever, but it's just a mummy bag you get in reflects all the heat back to you. It will keep you warm. It's waterproof. You know, if you're getting rained on, it works as a shelter. It's not a comfortable shelter. Again, we're talking about survival here. We're not talking about trying to stay at the Hilton while you're waiting on your rescue to show up. This is stuff you carry to keep yourself alive, right? It's, it's minimalistic stuff, but I just take this SOL bivy bag because it's perfect. It will keep you warm. It'll keep you dry if you need it to keep you dry. It weighs nothing. I mean, gosh, I don't even know how to describe the size of it, but I mean, it's smaller than my wallet is. You know, it rolls up smaller than my wallet. Weighs nothing, takes up no space, and it's great. And that functions as shelter. If you have rain ponchos in your backpack, you can cut those open and turn them into an effective survival shelter. You know, you can make a lean-to and use brush and all the things to make it you know, a little bit insulated, but if you just got a little bit of a rain top uh, poncho that you can cut open and spread across there as well, you can even add another layer of water, um, uh, waterproofness to it and have a dry shelter. That's going to stay warm. You can build a fire in front of it and keep yourself warm. Anyway, things like that are the things you need to be thinking about for shelters. Go out with something to shelter yourself. That's the bottom line. However you do it, whatever works for you, take something to help you have, protection from the elements. That's the like real key here. Um, when it comes to fire, two is one, one is none, but God, fire is so easy to have things for. Take three or four or five, like take a lighter, start with a lighter, be the most logical. You know, we've talked about this. You're not out there to be Bell, Bear Grylls. You're not out there to be less Stroud. You're not be out there to be what Cody Lundgren or Lundin. I can't remember how you say his last name. Anyway, we're not out there to impress people. You're out there just to live. So take a lighter, just take a lighter. On top of that, you take weatherproof matches. On top of that, you take a striker. All of these things weigh next to nothing. They cost next to nothing and they take up next to no room in your bag. And the whole key to starting like to staying alive out there, one of the biggest things is fire, guys. It goes with shelter, but it's fire. It's good for everything. It keeps you warm. It also keeps your morale up, right? It can work as a signaling device. And we're going to talk about that here in just a minute in the mitigation section, there's so many things that you can do with a fire that are really important to your survival. If you're out there and you're kind of stuck and you're waiting for someone to find you. Um, and then there's signaling. What do you need for signaling? Y'all take a survival whistle. Okay. Get a whistle, a, a rescue whistle. I said survival whistle, get a rescue whistle. They're super loud. You don't have to yell your lungs out until your vocal cords are all you know, like you've been to a freaking Metallica concert in 1999 when you were 20 years old, like you don't have to like totally lose your voice by yelling for help. Get a whistle. It takes like so little effort and it'll sound carry so much further. They weigh nothing. They cost you two or three bucks on Amazon. Buy a dozen of them, put them in every bag, have a rescue whistle, um, a mirror to possibly signal aircraft. That may sound a little bit, you know, like fancy pants and kind of, you know, romantic and dramatic. And I'm out here signaling at the search crew, you know, that actually y'all there's more and more searches. There are birds in the air. Okay. There, we got a lot of stuff. We have a lot of resources in this country. We got a lot of people with choppers. Now you got state police with it. You got the national guard with it. Like I've seen and heard about 
the birds getting deployed more and more and more often. There's a decent chance there's going to be people in the air looking for you. Drones, drones. God, we're integrating drones into everything. Drones are like the next generation of friggin' search and rescue. Drones with FLIR, drones with... Guys, listen, people are going to be looking from the air too. So a mirror, not a bad idea, okay? But make sure that you get an actual signaling mirror. Don't trust the one on your stinking lens attic compass. Because have you ever tried to aim one of those? Really? Have you? Have you ever tried to aim one of those at an aircraft that's three miles away, at four, you know, at 1,000 feet, 1,200 feet of elevation? Like, you have no clue where you're aiming the damn thing. Like, get a actual rescue mirror because it has a circle with a sight line right in it that you look through and it helps you sight it. They're like $5. They're, they're not expensive. And they take up no space and they weigh nothing. Get one. Get a rescue mirror. Um, so have a way to make audible noises which is called attraction techniques. What we use, we use them too, attraction techniques. Get a whistle, get a signaling mirror, and make sure you can build a fire because it can also work for signaling. And finally, one more thing as far as gear goes, and I thought about this last second. Gear, like medical gear, trauma stuff. You got to take out some meds anyway. If you're out there hiking, always carry your own meds, especially, especially if you have some kind of a condition. If you are diabetic, Take insulin. If you have a heart condition and you have to take some kind of medication for it, have a couple of extra of your script. Um, an EpiPen, if you go anaphylactic, man, if you're allergic to bees or wasp or what the hell ever, carry an EpiPen. Like, make sure and carry things to affect your own survival and your own rescue in case things go wrong and you're out there longer than you expect. Have a couple of extra of all of those. And when it comes to carrying them, think about this on your pack somewhere. Think about like sewing a patch or putting some kind of a tag hanging from one of the pockets that's marked in big letters in, you know, Sharpie marker, EpiPen or um, insulin or something like that. And, and maybe even, this is not a bad idea, wear some kind of an ID tag or put it on your bag that says these conditions that you have. If you have one of these conditions, you know what's super helpful if we come up on you and you're unconscious is to know, hey, look here. God, they, they might just be in a diabetic coma. Like we got insulin here. We can work with See, like mark it, mark it on your bag, you know, put the big red, you know, what first aid cross on there and have on the one side written and really easy to read letters. Here is my EpiPen. Here is my insulin. Here is what the heck ever that might be specific to you. We need to know and possibly a tag hanging with it that says, here are the conditions that I have that you need to know about. Put your blood type on there. You know, what if you're bleeding out? You got to start getting a transfusion fast. I ain't got time to test your blood type. Like, put that kind of stuff on there. Make a tag on there. And that's great preventative maintenance for affecting your own self-rescue, your own survival. That's not even just self-rescue. That's survival right there. So consider doing that. In your trauma kit, consider having like a, I don't know, like a, a tourniquet. You could actually put a tourniquet on yourself, you know? If you have one of your arms available and you you're bleeding hard, have some of these things and know how to use them. Tourniquet's not hard to use. You can watch a YouTube video and know how to use a tourniquet. Put it on there and twist that dude until the bleeding stops. You know, it's really that simple. Um, however, you got to move fast because if you're bleeding that much, you might be losing consciousness pretty quickly. But it's still good to have one. Still good to have one. But anyway, that's a lot of the gear for prevention. And that's some of the, just the ideas, the knowledge of what you need to go in with. I mean, one more thing, I guess, would be self-protection. I mean, a lot of people are just going to carry like a weapon, but you know, a lot of people aren't about weapons. Carry bear spray, like carry bear spray. Cause it's the strongest thing you can get. It's stronger than pepper spray. You could jack up a bear. You could jack up a hog pretty good. Um, you can jack up a human. 
like guys, I mean, ladies and guys, we all are targets out there for predators, not just the animal kind, but the human kind it goes for men and women alike. Ladies do understand that you are a higher percentage um, of being targeted. Doesn't mean you're not as capable of defending yourself, but you need to know you're targeted more often and you need to be ready to defend yourself. Carry some kind of a weapon out there, just the same as I do and anyone else would. Just know that you're going to be targeted more often. It's an unfortunate fact of life that is stupid and I hate it and it shouldn't be that way, but it is. Carry bear spray. If you're not going to pack a weapon, carry bear spray because I promise you, no one is, if they're still coming at you after you hit them with bear spray, they sure don't know where you are anymore. I promise you that. And you've got a hell of a head start on them because they can't run through the wilderness. They can't run anywhere. They're going to be tripping and falling and running face first into trees. Bear spray is a really, really great thing to keep on you for that kind of protection because it also helps with wildlife. Okay. Anyway, that is most of the gear for wilderness prevention that you're going to need. Um, and it's some of the knowledge, like we talked about, cascading failures, just being aware that's what happens. Slow yourself down, assess the situation, and start taking stock of what you have in your bag, what you can use to help find your way out, or set still, which is what we prefer, um, and start you know, preparing to affect your own rescue, making it easier to find you. But that's kind of some best practices on the prevention side of things when it comes to affecting self-rescue. And we've definitely pushed our half hour mark. So we're going to go to break and we'll come back and we'll start talking about the mitigation process of putting these things together and putting them to use um, and how to help us find you, how to help yourself stay alive while we're looking for you. And then towards the end of the episode, like we said, we'll talk about um, some water safety some water prevention and what to get into. It's, it's pretty actually fascinating. Actually, I'm looking forward to talking about that part. It'll be short and sweet, but it is very interesting to consider. But anyway, we're going to get to break and we will catch you guys on the other side. What is up, all of you wayward souls? I want to tell you guys about our newest sponsor, Bendetti Optics a brand based right here in the good old US of A, Portland, Oregon, to be exact. And I bought my first pair of Bendetti sunglasses about a year and a half ago and fell in love with them so much so that I got online and ordered a couple more pair. And when I did, there was a small shipping snafu, an order fulfillment snafu, and I got on the phone, gave them a call, and guess what? I get a call back from who? One of the big men themselves right there in Portland from the top of the chain, have a great conversation, and we end up starting this great relationship we have. They more than made right, the little snafu that occurred, and I am now a huge proponent of them because I can tell you from personal experience, they are good people, and they are trying to compete with the big boys out there coming in at a price point of about $40, but using the exact same frame material, TR90, and the same polarization process as the big guys. As it turns out, something I think we are already probably knew in our hearts, when you buy big name sunglasses, you're buying a big name, not necessarily any more quality than you can get somewhere else, like at Ben Daddy Optics. They have 29 different styles. They have multiple polarization options for whatever climate you happen to live in. And they back it up with like this lifetime guarantee that if your dog eats your sunglasses, it doesn't matter how you break them, send it back in with a check to cover shipping and handling and you're golden. You got a new pair on the way. These guys are truly trying to do it right. And they have this philosophy that a really good pair of sunglasses should not cost you so much that you are afraid to wear them. And I think all of us outdoorsmen can relate to that. 
So if you guys, like me, are very practical and like to get more bang for your buck and wear some great-looking sunglasses, check out BendettiOptics.com. That's B-E-N-D-E-T-T-I, Optics.com. Or you can go over to Instagram slash BendettiOptics. And that I highly suggest, whether you buy a pair or not, just to check out the cutest pupper you will ever see modeling sunglasses. Once again, that's BendettiOptics.com. And make sure and let them know Wayward Stories sent you. And welcome back. Thank you guys for sticking around through our sponsor break. If you feel so inclined to go support those sponsors, whomever they might be, and let them know Wayward Stories sent you, it helps keep us on the air. And if you're not going to go do that, go leave us a rating or review. Anyway, let's get on with tonight's show. Start talking about mitigation. Once you realize you are lost, what are you going to do about it? Well, number one, we mentioned it a while ago. Slow down and assess a situation. Don't turn this failure. You've had your first failure. Uh, Could be a cascading failure. It doesn't have to be. First thing you do, this is the first failure. Slow down, stop, and assess. Am I really lost? Turn around. Look back. Does anything look familiar? You know, you've done this and you realize, no, I don't know where I am. Any number of reasons this could have happened. You could have went off on a side trail. You could have followed a game trail by accident. That happens all the time. I do that. That's not uncommon. The sun, you know, we could have a lot of cloud cover and suddenly you really can't tell north, south, east from west if you don't have a compass with you. Like there's any number of ways you can get lost. It happens every day. It's nothing to be ashamed of, but it is something to be very wary of because it can get very dangerous very quickly. So the first thing you do is slow the hell down. Take stock of the situation assess situational awareness. What kind of trouble am I really in here? Think about the weather. Am I looking at weather tonight? Do I need a shelter ASAP? Is it awesome weather? And shelter's maybe not my first priority because I need to work on something else. You know, it's going to be situational to you. Whatever situation you're in, whatever environment you're in, it's going to be situational to you. And you have to assess that for yourself. Hopefully, you did pre-planning. You did wilderness prevention, wilderness being lost in the wilderness prevention. And you know, these are the threats I could face. Here are the things I need to do to mitigate those threats as much as I possibly can. When you're in a situation like this, understand you're not guaranteeing yourself anything. You're not guaranteeing yourself anything. You are trying to hedge the odds You're trying to hedge your bets. You're trying to make the odds work in your favor, increase the odds that are in your favor. It's all you're trying to do. You know, there's certain situations out there where you just, I mean, you'll either find faith or you'll lose faith because there's nothing you can do about it. A lightning storm in the wilderness, not much you can do about it. I think we've talked about that sometime in some episode in the past, but a lightning storm, you're just stuck with it, y'all. Pray to God. If you believe in God or something, you just better be hoping. There's not a lot you can do. Stay away from caves. Stay away from bluffs. Stay away from the tallest trees, but also stay away from the shortest trees. And stay away from open fields. Try to find a copse of trees that are all generally the same height. And stand flat-footed and squat down to make your profile as small as possible. And don't let any other part of your body touch the ground. And even then, you're still at the mercy of mother nature. You haven't increased your odds a whole lot, but you have done a little bit. You've tried at least. If anything out there watching, it's like, well, at least they gave it the old college try, but you're just at the mercy of the lightning storm and that blows. Okay. There's some things out there that, like I said, it'll either, you'll either, you'll either get faith or you'll lose faith. Like it's, 
can be scary to be out in a bad thunderstorm. But on most other things, you can really work the odds in your favor. You can do things to help increase your chances of survival. And that's what we're talking about here. Um, Number one thing is stay put if you can. Trying to catch you guys, if you're out there trying to get yourself found by getting yourself unlost, it's like, I've said it before, it's like trying to hit the whack-a-mole at Chuck E. Cheese, but you're doing it in like a freaking 10,000 acre square area. You know, you're doing it in a whole damn national forest. Whack-a-mole's hard enough on that stupid little three-by-two board, okay? Those guys are fast. If you're out there moving through the wilderness, a moving target is hard to hit no matter what you're doing. The best thing you can do is stay put and shelter in place. And we're going to talk about how to do that properly. But if you are going to try to keep moving because you think you know where a road is, and I know some of you are stubborn, so I'm going to go ahead and throw this in anyway. I urge you to do option number one. But if you're going to keep walking, if you're going to keep trying to find yourself because you are stubborn, and that's mostly you hunters, just saying, I'm just saying, mostly you hunters. God, y'all, the... (laughs) When you get into lost person behavior, the first thing you do is you're looking through there and you're like, average radius of a found dementia patient, 2.1 miles. Average, you know, autistic patient, 1.7 miles, whatever. Toddlers, three-year-olds, two miles, three miles. Hunters, 27 miles. It's like, because they ain't lost, y'all. Hunters don't get lost. They ain't never lost, Ethel. They ain't never lost. They ain't never been lost in my life. Yeah, they just keep walking because they're not going to be caught being lost. And then they get caught being lost 27 miles from the last known position they were in. Yeah, I'm looking at you guys. I'm looking at you guys. You just keep on walking. Anyway, makes you much harder to find because every hour you walk at three miles an hour, our search area broadens by like 12 times that. Okay, it's exponential because if we don't even know what direction you're going to start with, We don't just have to look three miles further down a trail. We have to look three miles further in a 360 degree panorama of the entire area that you might be in. Okay, the area gets larger every hour you move. So just stay put. But if you're going to keep walking, here are some things you can do. Number one, use a compass and actually stay going in one distinct direction because that gives you the best chance of hitting a road or a pipeline or a power line um, right of way that can give you some idea that, hey, if I follow power lines, I'm going to go to somewhere power is being used. That would indicate human presence, right? Get to a road and walk the road, whatever, but keep going in the same direction. So take your compass, part of your pre-planning, your preventative maintenance. Take your compass out with you and go in one straight single direction as best you can. Number two, leave breadcrumbs. Leave us a trail. Like, leave arrows on the trail, right in the middle of whatever trail you're following. You know, put down a few rocks and make an arrow that faces this way. Maybe you could even scratch out in the mud or something, SOS, with an arrow. You know, mud's not going to last very long, but, you know, leave breadcrumbs. If you have flagging tape, I should have mentioned that as part of preventative gear. Flagging tape's not hard for you to carry, guys, and it's not heavy. If you take some flagging tape, you flag the branches as you go. Give us something to follow. Like, if we find the first clue and we have something to follow, like, we're gravy train, man. We're golden. We're going to hunt you down. Leave clues. Leave arrows. Whatever. Um, Walk in one direction leave clues as you go. Um, and 
use a survival whistle, like I said, stuff that you should be taking out. And if you did not, yell, but don't yell often. If you're going to yell, yell like every 10 minutes or something and give like three sharp yells as loud as you can and then stop and listen. Listen for a reply. Okay. We actually have found people through using that technique. That was one we talked about a couple of years ago where we had found the guy that nobody even knew he was missing. We were looking for someone completely else, someone completely different. And then this guy was out there for like two days. Nobody knew it until we were out there yelling for this guy. And then that guy answers. That was like a whole thing. You know, that was a whole thing. But like, listen for a reply. If you're just yelling and yelling and yelling and you're not stopping and listening, you're not going to be able to hear if somebody's yelling back. Right. So that you know, I can walk towards them or are you, if you're not listening, we might not be able to hear you yelling, but you might hear us. That happens a lot in top, you know, in the terrain, just because of the topography, just because of the geology, there's weird stuff that happens with sound in the woods. Any of you that spend a lot of time in the woods, you know, there's some weird stuff that happens with sound and acoustics in the woods. You might be yelling your lungs out and we don't hear you, but you can hear us come to our voice. You know what I mean? These are the kinds of things that you need to know. We prefer you stay put instead of walking for all the reasons I have before mentioned. So let's talk about staying put and what you can do if you stay put to affect your own survival. Um, number one is like start taking care of your water and shelter and your fire in that situation. Number one is see to your own well-being. First of all, okay. If it's cold environment, you really need to be thinking about getting your clothes dry. If they've gotten wet somehow, you need to think about getting that fire started. And this goes back to getting your tools out, getting the things that you have prepared and all the things I mentioned in the first half of the episode that you need to take with you. Y'all, they don't weigh much and they don't amount to much space in your bag. I can show you my backpack and it is a big empty chasm if you were to just look at it at a glance. But once I take all the things I have packed and hidden away in it out, it's a bunch of stuff that can do a whole hell of a lot of things. It's all small. It's all light. It's all packable. And it doesn't take up much space is the whole point. Get the gear you need to save your own life in case you need it, but get you a fire started. Go back and listen. I have a firecraft episode. It's a year ago, maybe, but go back through the timeline. It's called firecraft 101. And I'm not going to go through it all over here again, but go back and listen to that episode. Cause it will tell you all about the ideas, the, the concepts, the theory, the philosophy of fire, why it works, how it works, things that work to help get it started out there in the wilderness. Guys, there's so many things that burn pine knots. You can pull right out of the ground, um, birch bark. You can get cedar as a birch or is it beech? beach? I think it's beech tree bark. Um, I get birch and beech mixed up all the time. I think it's beech tree. Anyway, you can get the cedar, like the cedar skin, the fur off of cedar trees is, is filled with the, the tannins and the sap. And like, guys, that stuff is so thin. It catches really easily. You use your lighter or you use your weatherproof matches. You'd build a big nest with all of this stuff. And then you have all these limbs. Like you get the small limbs, guys, take small limbs, take your cutting utensil. You know, it's, it's foregone that you have a knife in your kit, some kind of a cutting weapon. Like, I guess I should have mentioned that in the gear part, but I mean, that's like foregone conclusion. You better have some kind of something to cut things with. If you're a hiker or anything that goes out in the woods, you better have anyway, should be foregone conclusion, but if not put that in your bag. Okay. When you go to prepare, like even the smallest twigs to build a fire guy, split them just like you would a big log with an ax or a maul, split them down the middle. You just shove your knife, shove your knife into the top, 
and then you just put pressure and you split those little twigs. Anything split open is going to burn better. And the smaller the stuff is, the better it is if you split it. You can make little shavings. You can make the little curly cues off of sticks with that knife. Those burn awesome. Get together a really good nest that you have a good chance at starting. If you have chapstick in your bag, shove one of your weatherproof matches down in it, light the match, and suddenly you have a like five to 10 minute burning candle off the paraffin in your Blistex, in your chapstick. And that, you know, guys, if you got a 10 minute flame, you've got a fire unless you are just completely incompetent with building fires. Okay. It's all about the preparation of the nest and then the twigs that are going to be the kindling and then the larger branches. Split everything you can, shave the bark off of everything you can, use the shavings as more kindling, learn how to make a fire. Go back and listen to the Firecraft 101 episode if you need a good place to start thinking about it. There's a lot of good info in there. Hand sanitizer with alcohol alcohol content higher than like 62 to 67%, I think, is literally napalm, y'all. It's like gel. It's fire gel in a bottle. Everyone carries hand sanitizer, especially since COVID. God, people just give it away. They throw it away like candy at Halloween and Christmas, you know, and the parades. Get hand sanitizer with the high alcohol content and keep a bottle in your bag and you have fire gel in a bottle. And once soon as you put a flame to it, whether it be from your match, your sparker, it doesn't matter. Boom, you have fire. Okay, then it's just a matter of you knowing how to proffer that fire and create fire. But get a fire built. Get your fire taken care of. Get your sheltering situation lined out. I have my bivy bag. Oh, no, I don't have a bivy bag like the old wayward son told me to carry. But I do have my poncho, so I need to work out some kind of a little lean-to. Always build a lean-to where the back end of it is into the prevailing wind. If you've got a generally north to south wind, northwest to southeast wind, which is a good portion of the United States... Like build it so that the wind passes over you and don't build it so that the wind blows directly into it. That's common sense, but you'd be amazed some of the things I've seen over the years. Um, Get your little shelter where you can stay dry. Get you a fire going so that you can stay warm and you can dry out clothes if you need to. And then start signaling. We'll start signaling to begin with, especially if you have a whistle. Blow that whistle, build your shelter. Blow that whistle, build your fire. Blow that whistle, do the next thing. Go make sure you have water. Go fill up your water bottles from the creek with your live straw if you can. You know, they have live straws now that you just actually attach to your water bottle. And it'll fill up. You can just put the dirty water into your water bottle and then drink through the live straw. Boom, clean water. Okay, so get those things lined out, but you start working on your signaling techniques at this point go out and you try to pick a spot. Okay. Picking a spot's important too. Don't pick a spot in a low lying area for freaking one thing, right? You get a flash flood overnight guys. I don't even need to talk about this, but I guess I do need to talk about this because you know how many people I see camping literally on the Buffalo river on the rocks every year or on the mulberry, which you don't see a lot of that because it's mostly private land. That's, that's a mischaracterization. The Kings River, you see it. But on the Buffalo, people camping on the water, got their tents on the gravel bar. Y'all, the water comes up. It just did it last week. Had a huge rain overnight. And during the day, the water came up like a, oh my God, it came up six, eight, ten feet over like just a few hour period. If you're out there and that does it in the middle of the night, you're dead. And guess what? You're like, oh, what are the odds of that happening? They're pretty good. It happens. Actually, there's a really bad situation that happened here in Arkansas that I'm not going to talk about. I've mentioned it before and I don't like bringing it up. It's 
a rough, rough deal where a whole lot of people died because the water came up like 24 or 27 feet in two hours in the middle of the night in a box canyon campground. And it was a horrid situation some maybe a decade ago roundabout. Um, but I mean, it was bad y'all. It happens. Flash floods happen. Never camp on the riverbank. I'm guilty of this for I sound all too preachy. I'm guilty of this in the past. I used to do this very thing. Never thinking about this little issue. Well, I think about it now because things, you know, stuff don't do it. Just don't do it. Um, in any situation, but especially in a survival situation, you might think I need to be close to the water. I need water. Like, yeah, you need water, but you can walk to get water, get a high spot. So that if there is some kind of a flash flood upstream, and this is the thing you don't need to know. You don't know it could flood way upstream. The rain could be 15 miles away. The flash flood's still going to hit you. You might not even know there was a storm and suddenly you're dead. You wake up dead, right? Drown like a drowned rat. Cause you are a drowned rat. Like don't camp on the bottom. Don't camp at the edge of the water. Camp uphill somewhere out of a the immediate vicinity of being flooded out. That's number one. Two, if you're down on the river, guess what? You're down in a valley. You're down in some kind of a ravine. You're most likely less visible to anyone that's looking for you. So try to find high points. Find high spots. If at all possible, find yourself in a field or next to a field. It'd probably be better to be sheltered in the trees for the sake of weather and wind and all those things. But build it right next to a field and go out in that field. And mark, like, stomp down in the grass, a giant X. What else do you have to do? You're lost, right? What else do you have to do with your time? Get out there and stomp down a giant X in the field if it's got tall grass. And just keep going out there and walking back over it. Because you're out there visible, for one thing, when you're making it. But two, when you're not out there making it and you're trying to conserve calories over by the fire and stay warm, if a helicopter comes along and you can't get out there in time, or what the hell ever, or you become incapacitated, say something happens and you are just you know, at the very extreme limits of what you can handle physically and you're incapable of getting over there, they see the X, they're going to set down and they're going to start yelling and looking for you, right? Make a big X out in the field. If you've got like colored tarp, if you've got uh, anything in your bag that's super bright colored, put it in the middle of the field, weight it down. Fires. We just talked about fire. If you're in a place where you don't have a high potential of wildfire and like killing yourself in like a billion acres of forest, build a fire in a more open area, tend it, be careful with it, break back all the grass, you know, make a big dirt circle. That's also highly visible, but build a fire in there. And during the day, you put green boughs off of trees on it so that it smokes like crazy because you could have a smoke column following going up through the trees that a helicopter pilot could see that searchers could see from distance and at night you put on the dry wood which is going to keep you warmer a but it's going to burn way brighter than the green boughs will it makes less smoke it burns brighter and it's far more visible to a helicopter overhead or a searcher out in the forest up on a ridge two miles away sees a little glint of a fire down in there I told you guys a story before about when we were just doing a mock search one night, this guy that was on my team spotting a pair of like fake dummy legs across a ravine from like three quarters of a mile away. And the clothes were damn near the same color as the ground it was on. I was looking at it going through like a monocular going, that's a rock, man. Those are rocks. And he's like, I'm pretty sure they're legs. He was right. They were legs. That was the thing we were, that was a person quote unquote that we were looking for. Like, you'd be amazed what people can see from distance, especially a bright friggin' fire burning in the distance. So that's something to consider. But again, we're talking situational awareness. 
are you out there in the dry hinterlands of Cali and, and Utah and Colorado? Like, yeah, you might not want to do that. You might not want to do that. You might, you know, burn down the whole forest and that could be bad. But if it's somewhere you can, if the weather has been wet, if the humidity is high and it is safe to build such a fire, use a fire for signaling. I think it's actually three fires is the actual like universal code for distress. But the point is, if there's a fire in the woods somewhere where you're missing and they come and try to find you the fire, they're going to go check out the fire no matter what, period. They don't need three to see that. And three would be a lot of fuel. It'd be a lot of calories, your own fuel that you're consuming to make three fires. And it'd be more dangerous. I don't think you need that. Okay. I don't think you need that. That's probably more cinematic. That's probably more movie than anything, but I do think that's kind of like pretty standard, but you don't need that. Okay. Think about ways to signal. Think about ways to be visible. That's what your brain should be doing is how can I be the most visible possible? How can I be um, the noisiest with the least amount of effort? The whistle. How can I make the biggest impact on anyone flying over or on searchers out in the distance? Bright burning fires, smoke, you know, the X knocked down in a field, a big orange tarp that maybe was in your bag or something spread out in the field. There's any number of ways. If you have to walk down to the water, say you need to go get water and you did properly and you did your shelter in place up the hill and you have to walk, say, maybe a quarter of a mile to water and it's not necessarily right inside of your camp. Make markers along the way. Make little arrows or something because what if the search crew is rolling down the creek, you know, and they're 6'4". Like, make sure that they can see an arrow and go, oh, hey, wait, that's an arrow. They're going to go look where the arrow is pointing up. Promise you, we are looking for stuff like that, guys, which is another reason you should be leaving stuff like that behind, right? That's the kind of things we're looking for. Anything you can do to make yourself more visible to affect your own rescue, that's what it's all about. And it's mostly just logic. It's mostly just logic. It's mostly just common sense, guys. It's just stuff to consider that's like you can think these situations through yourself and you can carry out enough stuff in your pack that you're not going to like weigh yourself down. You're not going to get smoked because you put a, you know, a half a pound of gear in your bag that weighs nothing compared to the other stuff you're out there carrying around. Let's be honest. I've seen what some of you people carry like, but carry some things to affect your own survival. It weighs nothing and they just hide away in the bottom of your bag and you'll probably never even need them, hopefully, but they're there. You'll never see them. They're not in the way, but they're there waiting. They're there waiting. For the call of duty, if it's time, because you don't got yourself lost, okay? It's not that big of a inconvenience to be a little bit prepared ahead of time, and it may very well mean the difference between your life and death. You guys are like, I'm not going to get lost. Nobody ever gets lost. Y'all, people get lost all the time. Let me just tell you people get lost all the time. Like, I know, like, our team, we go on quite a few, but teams at large and just here in the state of Arkansas these dudes stay popping man there's counties right next door to us that are constantly popping because they have so many recreational opportunities they are always busy there are always people getting lost guys it is not uncommon it is a regular thing so just be prepared for the time that it maybe happens to you go out with water go out with a way to create shelter, go out with a way to signal people and just kind of understand, understand what we're doing. That's another one. We talked about knowledge. Let me give you just a little more. The ways we're looking for you, we're sending out teams from your last known position, from probably your truck, wherever it's parked or your little Subaru like mine or whatever. If you're a hiker, it might be a freaking forerunner, but we're leaving your vehicle. 
Okay. And we're looking from your vehicle. That is the epicenter of our search radius. We're going in all directions looking for you. We're going to start down the most obvious because we only have so many resources to deploy, right? We only have so many resources. We're going to follow the main trail that you probably obviously took. But if things don't pan out down that trail, we have to start spreading out. So just keep in mind, we're going to be looking at you for you from the ground. We're going to be looking for clues, not you. We don't look for humans. We look for clues because clues take us to humans. If we look for humans, we step over clues or stomp clues into the ground that might have told us another better area to start looking for you. One clue two miles down the trail that gives you another direction of travel could be the difference between life and death. So we don't look for you. We look for the th clues that you're leaving behind. And the average human leaves behind roughly, is it 3,000 clues per mile, whether it be footprints, broken twigs, broken glass, trash, you know, litter falling out of your bag. It's 3,000 is the average. You leave marks with every step you take where you're going. They can just be really hard to see sometimes, depending on the terrain or how many other people hike the trails, da-da-da-da-da. But any way around it, we're looking for clues to look for you, okay? So know what we're looking for. So leave markers if you're lost and you're moving, or if you walk away from your shelter-in-place camp and you've got to move around a little bit, leave markers. Leave, you know, anything reflective you can find. Put bright things that were in your bag hanging from the trees that you're camped in whatever it is know how we're looking for you know that there are going to be drones most likely involved there might be helicopters involved so we may be looking from the air too in these days it's most likely we're looking from the air too so keep that in mind just go out prepared guys to help affect your own rescue it is the best thing you can possibly do to stay alive should you ever get lost. And now we're like closing in. We really are to the kind of the end of the episode, but I did promise you guys we would talk about water rescue a little bit, self-rescue in the water. There's only three or four things I'm actually going to talk about here. When it comes to prevention of water, we're talking like white water-ish type of stuff, but it's applicable to any water, any water at all. Okay. But white water is really the main threats that we're kind of really looking at here. Number one, number one, overall, wear a life jacket. Nobody wears a life jacket. You're too cool for a life jacket. I know. I was too cool for a life jacket for a long time, too. And it nearly cost me a few times. But I was too cool for a life jacket. I get it. But don't be too cool for a life jacket because then you'll be dead. And then you're not cool enough to even hang out at the party anymore because you're not alive. Okay? Wear a life jacket. Just wear your stupid life jacket. It's that simple. That would save, like, probably 95% of the people that get recovered on search and recoveries in water. Just wear your life jacket. Things you need to know. The dangers you might face out there, mostly again, white water type of stuff, hydraulics, strainers, um, low hanging trees, low hanging traps, low bridges, things like that, um, are losing the boat in white water. Okay. So let's talk about these dangers. The best thing about the prevention is knowledge of the knowledge of the, um, the threat hydraulic. What is a hydraulic? You know, we call them the washing machine of death. Um, we call low head dams, death machines, like basically anywhere that a large amount of water pours over a ledge into a deeper portion of water, it can, and usually does create a hydraulic. A hydraulic is essentially imagine the water pouring over a dam and where it hits the water, all that force and the weight of water, which is very heavy, as you know, pushes down and it starts to recirculate on itself and it creates the washing machine of death and it just recycles and recycles and it never stops recycling and there is a break line where the water is getting away downstream but anything inside of that is just recycling if you go into that 
you have a very bad day ahead of you and the odds of your survival are not great. And I'm just going to not cut you. I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. It's not good. It's not great. Your odds of survival are not good at all. And it's more than anything kind of up to the fates is what's going to happen to you. And there's a couple of things you can do. And we're going to talk about that in just a short minute away. But the number one thing too is avoid it. Okay. Preventative maintenance. Avoid it. Know what a hydro looks like. Know where they're likely to occur and stay the hell away from them. Do not go over a low head dam in a kayak. You know how many videos you can find on YouTube of some dude on purpose going over a low head dam in like a freaking academy kayak? Dude's in a spray skirt. It's not a playboat. This guy's not a kayaker. He's like, Jimmy Joe said, hold my beer and watch this. And then he goes over a low head dam and then he dies. Okay. Or he goes over the low head dam and he gets lucky and gets spit out the other side. And then they're all laughing, but they're just laughing it off because they know on some deep level, some really bad ish just nearly happened. Okay. It's a big frogging deal. It's a big frogging deal. Don't go over low head dams on purpose. And if you can avoid it, you know, watch out for them. You know, if you're coming up on a dam, if you hear rushing water, if you see a pour over ledge, be prepared. Okay. Now I'm not talking to you whitewater kayakers. You go out there looking for that on purpose. And I know what you're doing and that's fine. Cause you're going out there, you know, full capacity, you know why you're doing it. You're doing it on purpose. You know how to deal with it and you're fully ready to take and accept responsibility for what happens if it doesn't work out. Right now, I'm talking about just the rest of us. If you're out there on the river, if you're out there on the Mulberry with all the rest of the peoples or say you're even on the Elk or the Illinois, which is much more placid, but say the water's a little high. It can create hydros. Y'all, I saw one of the nastiest hydros I've ever seen on the Illinois River, which is one of the like chillest float rivers ever. But we were like, no, I don't care. It's eight feet over flood level. We're floating it. Y'all, that hydro. Oh, my God. Like it was one of the biggest standing waves I've ever personally seen in my own real life. And it was just the Illinois River up by Tahlequah, northeast Oklahoma. Right like they can happen anywhere at any time. So know what one looks like, know where to expect it. And the best thing you can do is just avoid the damn thing. Don't get near it, go around it, get out of the freaking river and portage or for my Canadian listeners, which there's like a big contingent of you guys. And I love you guys portage. Okay. But portage around the stupid thing. Don't play with it. First of all, Okay. Just, just avoid it. It'll be, it could be a low water bridge and the water's just the right level that it's creating a low water dam, like a low head dam type of scenario, or it could be an actual pour over ledge, but just know what a hydro is, where to expect to see one, what one looks like and try to avoid it. Now, let's say you did not effectively avoid the hydraulic and you went right into it. This has happened to me before. Fortunately, the one real time that actually happened, I was able to paddle out of it and that was just lucky because it wasn't that powerful of a hydraulic at the surface under it still would have killed me if I'd gone in it. I probably wouldn't have got out of it, but it was just, it was almost adrenaline, I think is what saved my life, honestly, because I realized it after I was already hitting it and I paddled harder than I think I've ever paddled in my entire life. I promise you, I shot out of that thing by the time I finally broke free of its magnetic death draw, like avoid it. But if you go in, if you lose the boat. And you go into a hydro and it sucks you under. These are the only things you can really do. Okay. I read up today to make sure I had a knowledge already of what you're supposed to do, but I read up to make sure there's no new thoughts or there's no whatever, you know, just to see, make sure I've got all of my P's and Q's here, you know, make sure I've got all the lowercase J's dotted. Um, here's really all you can do. Swim for the bottom as hard as you can. Now that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? That doesn't seem like the right idea to swim for the bottom. That's because of the way a hydro 
works, how it is constructed, okay? Like it recirculates on itself and the outflow in a hydraulic is at the very bottom of the river. The water that is making its way out is happening at the very bottom of the river. So your best chance of catching that outflow is by diving down to the bottom and trying to swim downstream, which it could be hard to do because you are going to be disoriented, but try to swim downstream. If you recycle, if you recycle, if you recirculate, if you come to the surface, be prepared mentally that you might resurface for just a split second. And when you do try to get air, try to suck air. Anytime your face hits, you feel air, suck air, and then shut it off as fast as you can. So you don't suck water when it sucks you back under, but swim for the bottom as hard as you can or swim for the side. If it's a contained hydraulic, if it's a low head dam, it's the same all the damn way across that pun intended swim for the bottom and try to swim away downstream if you can orient downstream but the key here is to fight for your life fight like your life depends on it because your life depends on it fight for your life kick off of anything you can kick off if you get pushed up against the wall of the dam or the rock kick off of it as hard as you can fight for your life because you truly are and try to swim to the bottom of the river that's your best shot. If it's self-contained and it's a small one, you can swim for the sides and maybe you'll catch one of the outflows that's kicking out the sides. Unfortunately, that's it, guys. It's all you need to know about a hydro. It's about your best shot. I've heard stories I read and some of you may say um, this because I heard and I read a couple of stories where somebody went limp because they went unconscious or right at the verge of unconscious from drowning and their limpness actually may have been what saved them. It kicked them to the bottom and kicked them out. But that's not, there's not like a body of work to support that. Hey, you should just go limp. Like the whole preponderance of everything is fight for your life. You have to swim as hard as you can in whatever direction you can, but try for the bottom. Cause that's your best shot. Um, and there is one technique where it's like to wad yourself up in like a pill shape, like a ball, like go fetal is the best I can understand. And maybe that will give you a chance at ejecting. Um, or being ejected from the hydro. That one I'm less sure on. I just, I guess I'm just mentioning it because I saw it mentioned somewhere in a whitewater forum. Um, but I couldn't get any real great info on that. Like the best thing I can tell you guys is you don't have great odds. If you're actually stuck in the hydro swim for the bottom, that is the best accepted practice. Swim as hard as you can for the bottom and try to swim downstream. If you have any idea which way downstream is. Um, second, let's talk about strainers. Strainers are trees that are just hanging in the water, right? Their limbs are in the water. The tree fell over the bank washed out from under it. The tree fell over for whatever reason it is in the river and the river current is plowing right through the branches of the tree, creating a strainer. A strainer is essentially what it sounds like. It's straining the water. So anything that gets pinned up against it has got the full force of the power of the water pinning it to the tree. And you are far more inclined to be pushed down into the water than you are up over it. What can you do to self-effect a rescue in a strainer? The number one thing that we know is preventative. Just avoid it. Go around it. As best you can, don't play games with it. If you have to portage, if you have to get out of the river and walk through the chiggers and the ticks, or the tiggers and the chicks, as we like to say, and go through the crud, do that. 
rather than try to fight your way around or through a strainer. Water is unpredictable, especially through strainers, because the branches and the rocks and the things that are under the water that you can't see could be affecting currents to where you might say, look, there's a gap right in the middle of the limbs in the strainer. I can get through that. I think I can squeeze through there. And about the time you get there, a current you can't see cross cuts and swings the ass end out. And now you're upside down and you're upside down in a strainer actually underwater to start with. You don't even get to start above water. Avoid the strainer, first of all. If you can't, if you've gone out, you're being taken towards a strainer and you have no help whatsoever, no idea what to do. This goes against all wisdom when it comes to losing a boat and fast moving water, but swim towards it. Head first, swim towards it as fast as you can and try to use the momentum that you have working for you when you get to the strainer to grab a hold of it and try to propel yourself over it. Try to grab the strainer and drag yourself up rather than down and climb through and over the strainer. That's legit the best practice that anyone has to offer. If you're going into the strainer, don't just let it take you there. Go down fighting. Take it on head first and try to propel yourself over it. That's your best bet. Okay. If you do get pinned in a strainer and it's like you're pinned prone, your head's above water. That's happened to me actually in my life. And the best thing you can do first is slow down and assess. Stop and take a deep breath and go, I am not dead yet. I'm not dead yet. You will be, but I don't want to go in the cart, right? You don't, yeah, but I'm not dead yet. If your head's above water, you're not dead yet. Take a minute because you have a minute, right? Take a deep breath. Think about the situation and start looking around you. Can I get a hold of a branch above me? You're going to have to use some adrenaline, but I promise you, you've got it in spades, baby. You got adrenaline right now. Use it in your favor. If you can find a branch or something above you that you can get a good freaking purchase on and get a hold of that dude, go for it. Drag yourself up as best you can. Don't even worry about losing your shorts, man. It might be a little bit embarrassing, but if your shorts are hung up on some twig, it's all right. It'd be better to be found naked and walking around with a fig leaf, I promise you, than to be found dead in your boxers or your trunks. You know what I mean? Um, Just that's your best bet. Try to go over the strainer. Don't try to go through it. Go around it if it's very easy to go around. But if it's even kind of a threat maybe to go around it, just portage. Just portage. But your best bet is to take it head on, guys. Take it head on, face first, swim as hard as you can, and try to propel yourself over it. And just try to use the adrenaline that you will surely have to help you get through that alive. Just understand the odds are not super great. Strainer drownings are a high percentage of drownings. They're they're not pretty, man. It's not pretty. Um, another one like low head stuff, low trees, low hanging trees, those can get you tipped out in deep running water up against a bank and you can end up in kind of a, a mini hydraulic up under a bank ledge. You see that a lot on our rivers here in Arkansas. You're going under the low hanging trees where the bank and the, the river bottoms kind of wallowed out at the bottom because that's just where the course of the river is taking it. Right. And all of a sudden, like you catch a low hanging tree to the face and you whip one way. Well, now you've shifted your weight. Now you've turned your kayak. Now it took water on one edge. Now you're upside down. Now you're in the water. Now you're underwater in the faster current. And it could take you right up under ledges. There was a guy down on a, what river was I on? I was on a river somewhere in Texas. And this dude, I came up after someone had drug him out. He nearly drowned. He got up under a ledge and one of like the slowest moving looking sections of water, but underneath it wasn't so slow moving. And he got pinned up under a ledge. It was actually crazy, man. This dude was, he was all kinds of jacked up. It was a weird deal. Um, 
But anyway, just be mindful of that. Watch out for low hanging stuff. And two, water moccasins like to hang out in the low hanging branches. And I personally know of someone, it was actually one of my grandfathers, who had three of those dudes dropping a flat bottom boat on him out on the Black Fork River at one point in history um, because he was up under there fishing and those dudes just kind of plopped down. I don't know if he hit the branch or what, but they came down the boat with him and nearly killed him. He nearly killed himself trying to get those snakes out of his boat, right? Snakes like to hang out on those branches. So, you know, maybe stay out from under the low hanging branches anyway. Yeah. Sorry for all the nightmares I just gave you. If that's not something you've ever been aware of <laughs> when I'm on the river, I'm always like looking up. I promise you I'm not a fan of snakes, especially flying snakes. Like snakes aren't supposed to fly, but apparently they can on the river. They'll drop right out of the tree on you. Um, so just keep in mind, you know, and watch out for low water bridges. Going under a low water bridge, sometimes it looks like you have room to make it and you don't have room to make it. And that can get really ugly a little fast, you know, really fast. Portage, portage, go around, guys. Take the path of safety, portage in a lot of these situations. And finally, if you ever lose the boat, feet first, downstream. Always go feet first downstream, especially in fast water, because your feet can take and absorb a blow from a big rock at three or four miles an hour. How fast the river might be throttling you downstream a heck of a lot better than your head can. If you get knocked unconscious, you're in deep crap anyway. Keep your head upstream, except for when approaching a strainer and attacking it to save your life. That is the one exception to the rule. But other than that, feet downstream on your back, looking around and trying to guide yourself if you can around big obstacles that are very dangerous and just try to keep it together until you reach calmer water and you can see an eddy or an exit to a island or the side of the river. And that is your best bet. If you lose the boat in whitewater, just let it go. If you can't get a hold of it to help keep you afloat, let it go. Don't worry about it anymore. Get your feet pointed downstream, get on your back. And that's going to be a lot harder to do if you don't have your life vest on, which we just talked about. Always wear your stinking life vest, but feet downstream, looking around, head on a swivel on your back and looking for the next best exit, but don't fight it while you're in the rapids. You're just going to make things worse for yourself. Go through, you know, what do they call it? Traverse the rapids. Um, certain, you know, navigate, transnet, whatever, navigate the rapids as best you can survive the rapids and then start looking for your exit on the other side. It's the best thing you can do. And all that requires a level head. Always, always, always stay calm and assess the situation. You might have to move pretty quickly in some situations. Like if you lose the boat in rapids, but start thinking immediately, I've always said this, and this is true of relationships. This is true of situations in the wilderness and dangerous things. Do not react, respond, always respond. Responding is inherently like it inherently implies that you have to think about what you're going to do or say, never react. If you react, you lash out, you do bad things. If you react, you make bad mistakes, respond, take a second to think about what's going on and then respond to the situation. Anyway, guys, I think that about wraps us up for the week, man. I think that wraps us up for tonight. I talked way longer than I expected to. Glad you guys came back and joined me for yet another episode of Wayward Stories. I am super excited to see all the new downloads and welcome to all of you new listeners. You guys feel free to share. I tell this to everyone. Go and share. Word of mouth is the best thing you can do to support the show and keep us making it. If you are enjoying it, um, share it in your Facebook groups, you know, go and grab that link for YouTube, grab that link for your podcast player, wherever you're listening, drop it in a group, let people know we're here. Um, and ratings, reviews, subscriptions, if there's anything you want to know 
about what we're doing over here in Wayward Stories world. You know, there's a nexus of information. We call it waywardstories.com. And you can always, and I love to hear from you guys, and I respond every time. I always respond. I love to hear from you guys. Mywaywardstory at gmail.com. Send me an email, and I will get back in touch with you. I love chatting with you guys. Made some good friends over the last couple of years making this show, and I love that. But anyway, we're going to wrap it up for this week, and we'll look forward to seeing you a couple of weeks from now. Hopefully, if things go as planned, which is not promised, tomorrow is not promised, is it? Anyway, you guys have a great week, and you guys get out there. Have some fun. Have some fun for me. I'm not getting out much. You guys get out there and have some fun for me. And while you're doing it, do not forget to be good to each other.